Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what is up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And in this show, I'm joined once again by my friend Martin Bamey, who you probably have heard on the podcast if you listen to any of the recent five questions episodes where we take questions from you guys and answer them. And those episodes will probably be coming back uh, occasionally in the future here. But today's episode is a little bit different. Um, Today's episode is actually an idea that I got from Martin, which was to go over books that shaped our lives. So in this episode, I've got four books that I chose that I think were pretty instrumental in changing the course of my life or the way that I think and the way that I, you know, make decisions. And Martin has got five books and we're just going to go back and forth and uh, kind of discuss some of the lessons we've learned. So hopefully this episode will help you, you know, learn some of the same lessons. And at the very least, uh, you might have some recommendations for additional reading material. I'm also going to be putting a discussion link for this episode in the College Info Geek community. I haven't been doing podcast discussion links so far, but I'm going to start it off with this one because I think you guys might want to discuss some of these books if you've read them or maybe you have questions about them or maybe you've got books that have changed your life as well and I would love to hear your own reading recommendations and we can all just kind of suggest more books to each other. So show notes are over at cigpodcast.com slash not slash anything, sorry, cngpodcast.com, episode 96, link on the page. I am totally distracted because someone is calling me right now. And uh, you'll find all the links we talk about, you'll find links to every book we discuss, and also a link to that discussion thread if you want to chime in and suggest your own books. Also, you can rate and review the podcast uh, with links on those on that show notes page if you want to help support the show. So let's get into this conversation. I'm going to be done with intro, and I guess I will answer the phone now. Okay, so we're going to do an episode about books that change our lives, but I feel like I should do a little bit of pre, pre-work pre here, because this is different than any episodes I've done before. Uh, Martin, you've been on the show before, but you've never been facing away from me Yeah, with a different mic. Yeah, so, it feels a little weird. PSA here, this is an experiment, and uh, I guess we should just kind of update people on what's going on. So you're kind of joining the CIG team. Um, in a role that is largely undefined right now. Like, do you would you do you have a definition in mind for what you're doing at this point? Uh, like cool stuff. <laughs> like cool stuff. Maybe yeah, it's pretty much a variable at this point. Yeah, so I mean, like you've been on the show before, and you also did a bunch of development work for me. But we're gonna step that up and have you fill in wherever I can't fill in, and then that will allow me to focus more, which is pretty cool. But uh, I've obviously known you for a long time, and I know that you like think pretty hard about things and you so i was like cool go up go and find some podcast topics like break out of the development rule and you had this idea to do an episode about books that shaped our lives which i think is cool so i came up with four books how many did you get i have uh five books uh one of which you've read but the other four should be good cool and i actually 
I don't think I know which books you chose, except I know the, the last one, which I have read, and which I would say was not exactly life-changing for me. Say that to my I, face and not on the internet. <laughs> I'll fight you. Yeah, that book was terrible, man. <laughs> no, actually, I liked it, but we'll we'll reveal that last book when we get to it. So, um, hopefully this episode doesn't take like six hours to do, <laughs> but we're going to run through yeah. nine books that changed our lives for for me five for you and uh we can have a little bit of like back and forth in that last one because i read it yeah and yeah hopefully this kind of helps you guys out with reading recommendations if you're looking for new books to read um i'm not gonna say like every book on this list will change your life because i think it's like one idea in a book uh read at the right time can really affect somebody in a way that might not be effective to somebody else at the same time but the recommendations at least and I would love to hear from you guys as well what books changed your life. So I'll probably put this oh, podcast episode. What's up? That would be great to see, actually. Yeah, I might put this episode in the Reddit. Uh, I haven't been putting podcast episodes in the Reddit so far. I've only been putting videos, but I might shift over to just posting all the content that we create in the Reddit so there could be more discussion around it. And if we're going to eventually get rid of comments on the website, that's probably the way to go anyway. So because I would like to consolidate discussion in a better place but yeah so let's get into the first ones and since you have five you should start and then we will kind of go back and forth all right all right so um most of these books that i'm about to name i read in the last year which to provide some context i spent last year uh, i had a nerve injury i talked about it in a previous episode of the podcast but that's that's where i was at the time so a lot of the context for why these helped me is because I was having to learn how to deal with losing a whole lot of what I was uh, proud of because of my injury and stuff like that. A lot of rediscovering purpose and such. So the first book I want to talk about is, it's actually a collection of speeches from Kurt Vonnegut. It's called, If This Isn't Nice, What Is? It's a collection of graduation speeches. Mm. And I all picked by this. Yeah, all by, okay. all by Kurt Vonnegut. And I picked this up because Kurt Vonnegut is my favorite author, uh, easily, and I needed uh, some motivating, some inspirational stuff that helped me look at life from a different angle so that I could figure out what I was doing. So, specifically, there are a couple of passages from this book that I thought were pretty cool that helped me think about stuff. Because like you said, it's you read a book, if a single sentence in that book makes you look at life differently, it, it can make the whole book worth it. Yeah. So... The one of the passages, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it talks about the idea of humans needing communities. And uh, one cool thing that he says is uh, that he thinks the institution of marriage isn't working the same as it used to because families are too small. So he's saying that humans need to be w around a lot of people. We need like a community, a society. But then he says that these marriages aren't working because a man cannot be a whole society to a woman. And a woman cannot be a whole society to a man. So we try to be too much for each other. And mm -hmm. we, we stop hanging out with friends. We stop going to groups. We stop seeing our family as much. And we just end up overall feeling really lonely, even if we're not actually alone. And the idea of communities, I thought, was really interesting because, uh, you know, Tom, like I read a lot of the internet bloggy stuff that's like, go travel the world and be super famous. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of focus on something as simple as appreciate your family and be good to those around you and be in a community. Dude, I think about that so much. 
Uh, sometimes I think like people who like like yeah, what are they called? Like those those sustainable living communities, where people just live in like a big commune. Yeah. Or even like you know hundreds of years ago, Native Americans living in big just community groups, nomadic groups, or or if they stay in one place. Um, I've often thought about that when I was in college. I was like, I really am kind of dreading the thought of getting married to whoever it is and then moving into a house and you know having either kids or just a wife to hang out with for the most part and that scared me because I really really enjoyed being in the dorms with all my friends and I still enjoy being in this house with five people and I know like I'm not uh, not everyone has the same exact mindset about that as, as I do but yeah that's kind of that's actually hitting me pretty well right now and this year is pretty important uh, for me in that regard because last year I felt that I was just kind of doing my work, coming home and hanging out here. And I wasn't, I didn't really feel any kind of connection to my city or my community or anything. And then this year, because uh, on the whim, me and Andrew took that ice skating class and a couple other things happened. I feel like I've been going out and kind of building more connections in my community. And I feel a little bit more just fulfilled and happy. And I don't feel like I need to leave and kind of, I don't know, feel dissatisfied with where I live and feel like it's boring. So, yeah, that's actually a pretty good thing to think about. Yeah, it's, just, so. it's something that gets, like, forgotten about in today's... You look at your Facebook, everybody's posting all their latest travel photos, and they're cooler than you, but... Mm-hmm. And then one of the other cool things in the book that's related to this is at some point, somebody was asking uh, Kurt Vonnegut for advice about whether they should move to, like, a big city, take this big job. But then he responded with something to the effect of, I'm sure you're very needed where you are right now. And that's that's a great thing because I found that when I go to a when I went to a big place, suddenly I was just, you know, somebody in a sea of people who could do similar things, but in a smaller place you're just so you're such an important part of the community. So it's like big fish in a little pond kind of thing versus yeah. little fish in a big pond. Yeah. Like going to the big pond isn't necessarily the answer to everything. Sometimes you may be happier in a small place just because it makes you feel more fulfilled. Yeah. My friend Ryan was telling me about the other day. Um, he moved back to Des Moines after I think he was traveling the world and climbing mountains and stuff. And he and some friends are they're building this real estate investing company. And he was just kind of telling me like about his little philosophy where it was kind of the same thing. He wants to kind of feel needed in his community. And there's just something about going back to the place where you grew up and I don't know hooking into it and becoming a really integral part of that community. And I don't know if that's what I need, but yeah, I've been thinking about that too a little bit lately. It kind of goes hand in hand with feeling a little bit more connected with your city versus going to work or in my case, working wherever I want and then coming home. And it's almost like this little bubble of my house and it exists uh, kind of separate from everything around it. And I really get that feeling because we live in a suburb and there's like not much around it. But yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just cool to hear that perspective when nowadays it seems like life is about achievements. How long is that book? Uh, it's not not super long since it's just a collection of speeches. I don't I don't know exactly, but it didn't take very long to read. What did you say it was called again? Um, if this isn't nice, what is? And I think it says like a collection of graduation speeches or something like that. But okay. I may have to read that now yeah. if it's really short. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool just to hear like 
Oh yeah, it's like a hundred perspectives. Nice. Okay, so my first book is a little bit longer than that one, uh, and it's kind of a cliche one, but The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Uh, that was like the first one that popped to mind when you asked me this question, and I think I listened to this book on audiobook. I never read it with my eyes, and I listened to most of it when I was actually driving from Des Moines to see you and Quentin in uh, Council Bluffs a few years ago probably like sophomore year and it's just like the seven habits he puts out made me think so hard about how I live my life and I don't know if it was just the right time or if it's just that effective but like that book really made me think about how I go about doing things and I have a bunch of notes here so I'm just going to kind of go through some of the main lessons I learned I'm not going to go through every every habit um there's like a ton of summaries online and I can I can post one in the show notes I'll just make a note here to do that Um, But one of the first lessons he talks about is like before about the 1920s, at least by Covey's estimation, people had this character ethic where they strove to improve themselves through uh, improving intrinsic qualities like their honor or their relationships in their community, um, you know, or their responsibility to their family, that kind of thing. And then there was this shift to this personality ethic ethic where um, success was more defined by like a public image or you know how people thought of you in general or kind of like material things extrinsic things and people started looking for more quick fixes which is why you had more self-help books coming out which is kind of ironic for a self-help book to say (laughs) things like that people you know uh, more like get rich quick schemes or people trying to get famous that kind of thing and you know i don't know how true that is but i did notice kind of a parallel in my life where i'm like a lot of what i was looking to do was find little hacks and tricks for improving things very quickly. You know, I want to ROI very quickly on something I'm trying to fix. Uh, by contrast, now I try to think more of like, how can I just become a better person in general? How can I uh, improve my character that's at the very core of who I am? Because everything is going to flow from that place. So I started thinking a little bit deeper in how, how I can improve things going forward from there. Um, Another lesson was about worrying about stuff. So I noticed that a lot of people worry about things they can't control and they get stressed about them. And uh, for a long time, I've been like developing this sort of like algorithm for for dealing with stress in my head. And it's kind of like it's like a flow chart in my head. I haven't really thought about it too hard yet, but it's like, you know, if you have something, uh, how, what can you do to affect it? All right. Do those things. If you can't do anything right now, you know, is there anything you can do or is it completely out of your circle of control? If not, don't worry about it too much. And it kind of flows from something he talks about in the book, which is these, these two circles, circle of influences versus circle of concern. So you have your circle of concern, which is where like everything that you're concerned about, worried about, um, following that kind of thing lies in there. And then you have a circle of influence, which is usually smaller. And these are the things you can actually control. Direct control, meaning you can go make a change yourself uh, entirely. Indirect control, which is like it's something with another person. You can say something to them. You can try to urge them to uh, take a different path or make a change or nothing. You know, you can't control it at all. Or maybe you have like very little control. Because like the one of the examples I think about is like global warming. You know, I can't I can't control that a whole ton. So there's no reason for me to worry about it too much. But I can I can make small changes in my life to sort of start contributing a little bit. Um, 
but I've had friends who are who are like worried that uh, an asteroid's going to hit the Earth, and like, <laughs> and like that's something <laughs> yeah. they're worried about a lot. And I'm like, you have literally no control over that whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so that's not a thing that should be in your circle of concern. So you want to either shrink your circle of concern to match your circle of influence, or start to increase your circle of influence by meeting more people or, you know, moving forward in life and becoming more capable. Uh, so when I have something that I'm worried about, I try to only think about it if it's within that circle of influence. If not, then I try to kind of write it down. Maybe I'll get it out of my mind and put it in a note or something so I do remember it, but then I shove it out of my mind after that. Let's see here. He's, he also talked about begin with the end of mind. So begin with the end of mind is something that's going to tie into another book on my list, but he urges people to think very carefully about the end result that they actually want. And I wrote a post called Be Mindful of Your Path uh, a while ago, which was all about this idea because so many students go to school and they're like, my goal is to get a good job that pays a lot of money. And the, like I'm like, well, why do you want that money? Or have you thought about, you know, the day-to-day experience that you're going to have while you're working in that job? Or is it literally just dollar signs in your mind? Uh, I met a guy when we were in the apartments who was visiting from some small town, like halfway between here and Omaha. And he's like, yeah, I got this engineering job there. Uh, There's nobody my age in that town. It's really boring. But basically, my goal was to get a good job when I was in school. So that's what I got. And it pays well. And he seemed like really miserable, whereas like, you know, some of the people I know aren't making as much, but they got to stay near their friends or they moved to the city they really wanted to move to. And they're kind of living the way they want to live, even if it's simpler and it doesn't make as much money. Or some people have kind of put those two goals together and like I'm making enough money and I'm also kind of building the life I want to build as well. So that really burrowed into my mind and I'm constantly thinking about what is this going to do? to get me towards something that I actually want to happen in my life, not just some arbitrary metric that either somebody else tells me that I need to have or that uh, for whatever reason I think I need to have. Um, he also talked about the Eisenhower decision matrix. Do you know what that is? Um, I feel like I do, but not at the moment. Okay, so it's like, the, it's like that uh, important versus urgent kind of thing. So you have like tasks that are important or not important and they're also urgent or not urgent. And you kind of have a matrix like that. And I think Dwight Eisenhower was kind of the person who either popularized this or came up with it. I'm not sure. But Covey talks about it in the book. And it's just kind of this idea of looking at any task you have and and asking yourself, is this important to me uh, or is it just urgent? So you have like quadrant one, which is urgent and important. These are like crises, like big things that happen, uh, pressing problems or deadline driven projects. Those like important things that need to be done and they're actually important to you. Um, there's also important but not urgent. So there's like relationship relationship building. You are recognizing new opportunities. You're planning things out. Um, not important but urgent are like interruptions, calls, meetings, popular, you know, just things people do, and you kind of get pressured into doing them. And then like the not important, not urgent stuff is like busy work, time wasters, and stuff like that. So to be more effective, you want to try to minimize all the non-urgent, non-important work that you can, and try to start focusing more on what's not urgent and important because you're going to have to deal with the urgent important stuff, of course. 
Uh, but if you can minimize stuff that is not important, whether it's urgent or not urgent, then you can spend more time on stuff that is important. And when you actually sit down and think about it, then you tend to be more successful. And <laughs> this this is my old, this is like the book with the most notes. So <laughs> if you're just like sitting there like, oh man, I want to get to my next book. Uh, I don't have as many for the next ones, but I've got a few more here. Uh, a really big one. I think this may be the one that affected me the most was this idea that with people you want to be effective and with things you want to be efficient. And he had this example in the book where he talks about a guy who wants to break up with his girlfriend. So he sits down and he thinks of like the most efficient, shortest way to do it <laughs> with like the fewest badly. things to say. And he's like, okay, it's so logical. It makes sense. I'll just say these things to her and obviously she'll understand it's efficient, right? And obviously that blows up in his face because people aren't things and efficiency is just, you know, getting the result in the least amount of time, right? Or doing work in less time, but that's not how relationships work. So with effectiveness, you need to think about like, how does the other person feel? Um, you need to be empathetic, that kind of stuff. And uh, the last time I had to break up with a girl, I was trying to keep that in mind so hard and it was still really tough to do, but um, I think I would have thought a little bit more of the efficiency mindset. And I mean, like, there's also the fact that you want it to be over with as soon as possible. Oh, yeah. Like when it's time to break up with a girl, you're like, uh oh. I, I just want this to be done <laughs> or I just want to be not alive until it is done. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good reminder <laughs> that you, you can't just, yeah, you don't want to do it. So you want to make it as quick as possible, but that's just not a good way to go mm -hmm. when you're doing something with people involved. Yeah. So think about what's effective with people, not just efficient. The last one I want to talk about is seek first to understand. And I don't remember which habit this is in, but he talks about how people all want to be understood and they all want to feel important and they all want to feel like when they're talking, your attention is on them and you're really trying to under, kind of understand and, I don't know, internalize what they're feeling. But the problem is a lot of people, when they listen, they're not really listening to understand. They're just listening while they wait for their turn to respond. Like maybe you say something and I'm like, oh, I have a really clever response to that. And you oh, get yeah. like five more things to say. And I'm just sitting there like, kind of drowning out what you're saying because I'm like, I really want to respond to that one thing you said three minutes ago. And that happens a lot. Oh yeah. Just like, no, you, you have to hear my story. Yep. It's the best <laughs> anecdote you've ever heard in your life. So please stop talking for a second so I can tell it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this can lead to people like one upping each other, um, you know, like minimizing the importance of what the person just said by, you know, bringing up your own story and yeah, it may not be the right time at all for them. <laughs> yeah i don't think people are per are like uh what's the word purposely doing this they're not like oh i'm gonna break down this person or you know make them feel less important with my story they just want to feel important themselves so there was this emphasis on how can i be empathetic with my listening how can i deliberately understand what they're saying and kind of minimize the importance of what i want to say so i can seek first to understand like he says and um you guys probably know that I'm kind of a robot sometimes, but I was worse before. <laughs> um, like with girls, I remember one one girlfriend broke up with me specifically for this reason where she would like complain about something or she'd you know be sad about something or have a problem and tell me it. And immediately my response is, OK, here's how you fix it. You know, like I got the solution right away. Yeah. And like 
girls don't want to hear that. They want to like, they want you to be empathetic and tell them, yeah, that sucks. And like, you know, hug them or whatever. Um, and that's just like, not what my personality was wired to do. Yeah. You so. hear the first three words and you're like, <laughs> oh, I figured it out already. The next part where you tell me how you feel about it. Uh, yeah. That part doesn't matter because I already solved it. So. <laughs> exactly. So when, when you know the solution to someone's problem, um, that doesn't mean you should say it because when they're telling you about their problem, unless they specifically say, I want you to help me fix this, they're probably just reaching out for support, uh, you know, emotional support. And they just want someone to vent to and they want someone to tell them everything's going to be okay. And then later on, you can work together to fix it. But if you're just like, nope, I'm Bob the Builder and I'm going to, I can fix it. Yes, I can right now. That doesn't work out well. Yeah. And some people don't even want help fixing it. They, they're just like, I want support now. I will fix it myself later because I want to feel independent about this. Mm-hmm. So if you just hand them the solution, maybe they'll stubbornly not do that solution, even if it was the best one, <laughs> just so that they can say they didn't need help. So that's like, you got to really keep in mind who you're talking to and what they're seeking. That is true. This book isn't on the list, but uh, Gretchen Rubin wrote this book. I think it's called Better Than Before. And she talks about these this four archetypes of personality. And one of them is like the the rebel who doesn't want to do what you tell them to do. So like if you have somebody who's like that, then telling them the solution is probably going to run counter to what you want yeah, to happen. Yeah, you probably just ruined them. Good job. <laughs> you took away the solution. Uh-oh. Okay, so that that's that book for me. Uh, and I would highly recommend that book. I think it's on my essential books list. Yeah, I've always meant to read it. I think I actually own it. I just never got around to it. Cool. Well, audiobook is pretty good. So if you have like time to just walk around or something. Cool. All right. What's your next book, man? All right. Next book, uh, we've got the Zen Habits book, which I actually kickstarted. It's from Leo Babauta from Zen Habits, his blog. What I, I liked a lot of passages from this and some of it with with a lot of things was stuff that, you know, I already felt or I already knew, but you read you read the right sentence at the right time, even if you already knew it, and it can re spark, Oh yeah, I did think that one time and I forgot to forgot to act on it or something. But I thought something that was really nice in here because of my injury and like all these plans had been derailed. Well, that's almost a pun, but he was comparing um, planning to train tracks, so derailed was accidental. Mm. But he was saying that like plans are like they're like train tracks sometimes, but you need to be more like water. So you've got a train going down a track. If something happens, you get injured. There's a boulder in the middle of the track. What are you going to do? Your your plan is ruined. The train runs into it. But he's saying you need to be more like water because if water is running down a mountain and there's a, a boulder in its path, it will simply divert find a different solution and get around it and keep moving forward. It will be reactive to what's going on. Uh, yeah. And I just thought that was really useful at the time when I read it. A lot of being present stuff because I had just had most of my plans before graduation were derailed. Everything was kind of, I was kind of stuck. I didn't know how to move forward past that. And then similarly, there was a part in here that was talking about uh, how people respond to big life changes like like you get in a big injury or your your one of your parents dies or you have to move mm-hmm. to a new place or you drop out of college or something and the he was talking about how the problem with these the thing that makes it hard isn't really the problem in a lot of those situations except for obviously the parents dying that's still still part of the problem but for a lot of the cases, 
The bigger problem is that your identity has been changed. So you are no longer Martin, who was uh, learning five languages in university. You're Martin with a nerve injury that's doing what he can to recover. And that's okay. Mm. You don't, like, the shift in identity is the hard part because you've, who, who am I anymore if I'm not what I thought I was before? I wrote down all these words that said who I was, and now it's not me. What do I do? So it's like at one point in your life, you were building off this foundation of everything you were, you know, all the accomplishments you had, all your abilities, your health, everything like that. Yeah. And then you built these goals off that and then something changed in that foundation, but you're still trying to live as if you are. Yeah. Like you won't let go of your past self. Right. You're it's a different version of you. Like, so then you're frustrated because you can't live as you were living before. Yeah, so like that water thing, you got to react to it. Because when I read that, the passage about the injury being a possible life change, I was just like, that's a good point. Martin, who doesn't have a nerve injury, is is not real mm. right now. So I can't cling to that. I can't say, yeah, I could do all these cool things if only my arms worked, because then I'm just going to sit here and, you know, stew in like bitterness. And it was just really nice to to read something that reminded me to embrace the present a little more and not just you can't do a lot about situations like that if your life situation has changed you need to respond to it you can't just cling to something that was five years ago or something yeah so it's all about kind of this balance between yes you need to be proactive and be setting goals and building things but you also need to have the ability to react to new things that come up that you couldn't predict yeah a lot of it's a lot about being more in tune with like uh, the present as opposed to any sort of here's exactly what my life's like I've got 20 steps perfect yeah but you need to be able to like respond to what's going on in your life and live a little more fully in the present so that you're not stuck being mad or jealous of the past or being super worried about the future you don't want to you need to balance it a little more Mm mm-hmm this is reminding me, remember when you used to play a lot of chess? Yes. So I used to play chess with my brother a lot when we were kids. And I would always get this perfect plan in my mind for all the moves I was going to make. And then I would fail to see what he was doing. Oh, and yeah. And then I, like three turns later, I'm going to go do something. And then, oh, no, I'm in check. Or like my queen's gone. Because I, really I failed to recognize analogy. where he was moving. And everything just changed. When the Fire Nation attacked. Yeah, when the Fire Nation <laughs> attacked, that's real. It is but real. Yeah, that, that happens with magic too. Like you've got this big, you've got this cool idea, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna do this specific way to win. It's gonna be the coolest thing ever. And if you're focused so much on your plan that you're not looking at the environment around you, well, your plan isn't gonna work very well. When you're not realizing there's an entire board wipe. Yeah, they just they destroyed everything. <laughs> they destroyed everything. Sorry, you have to be more reactive to the present, even if you have a plan. Yeah. Because you you simply can't control. It's like you were saying, the control and influence. You can't you can't influence everything, so at least pay attention to what's going on that mm-hmm. you can't control, so you can control your parts to respond to it. Yeah. And it's, it's not about, it's not, I, don't, I guess I want to dispel the temptation to say, oh, I can't control that right now. I'm going to put it completely out of my mind. Oh, yeah. Right. Because you can still do things that will subtly control things. You can have an influence on stuff, even if it's not going to absolutely affect the outcome. You know, you can increase your chances of affecting it. Oh, yeah. It's definitely not about 
well, this sucks, give up immediately. Right. But it's just let go a little bit of your mm. iron grip, demanding that it's exactly what you expect. Yeah. So kind of cut down on the stress it causes you, but also keep in mind that you may be able to either set yourself up to react better when it happens, or you may even be able to exert a bit of influence on it. Yeah, as if, if you react properly, you may very well be able to get the same endpoint that you wanted originally. Mm-hmm. Just the journey was a little different because you didn't predict what else would happen. Yeah. So my next book is... Uh, <laughs> I can hear Anna getting mad at Bloodborne out there. Yeah, I'm sure that's fun. <laughs> okay, so so my next book is a fan fiction. Here we go. <laughs> no, it's all right. Please continue. <laughs> uh, some people probably know but already, but... Um, the next book is Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, which is a fan fiction written by an artificial intelligence researcher named Elias Yudkowsky. And he basically works from the altered beginning of the story where Harry is like kind of a boy genius who is incredibly interested in science. He has better parents, uh, like better, I guess, what do they call it? Godparents, stepparents? Not step-parents. I don't know. Like his, his aunt and uncle? Yeah, a better aunt and uncle. That's what it is. Yeah, so um, Vernon's not in the picture. Like Petunia marries a professor of astrophysics or something like that. And <laughs> Harry grows up reading science books. And uh, then when he goes to Hogwarts, he's like, I'm going to find out the fundamental nature of magic and use the scientific method. And the book is really good. It's really, really long. Uh, it only goes over the first year. But in that first year, the book is like, I think it's as long as the three longest Harry Potters put together. So it's not like a light read at all. Um, and I really like the story. Like, I think it's incredibly well written. It kind of, it doesn't uh, delve into like the stupid fangirl territory that a lot of fan fiction does. So it's not cringy, but I don't believe you. <laughs> you cannot believe me all you want, man. <laughs> but the reason he wrote it is because before he wrote this, he spent, I think, three years writing this gigantic uh, series of articles on rationality, critical thinking, cognitive biases and heuristics and all that stuff on a site called Less Wrong. And uh, it's essentially a fiction story that gets people interested in those topics. And uh, that's why this book is on the list for me. It's not because it's a good story. I really enjoyed reading it. And I basically like didn't talk to any of you guys during my free, uh, spring break the year I was reading it because I didn't want to put it down. But it just makes you think more about the common kind of brain bugs, like the common biases that we have in our head when we when we form certain beliefs or when we make judgments about the world. Um, it taught me a lot about taking evidence that we observe and integrating it into our beliefs in a precise way. So saying, how much does this evidence affect my beliefs? Um, and before, before I read this book, I was very, I, w- I was really interested in principles and it was almost this mindset of like my principles must be rock solid no matter what happens in the real world. Uh, and this is the product of a religious upbringing. And then I read this and it's like, well, no, you know, what I observe in the world has to affect my beliefs somewhat. Otherwise, I'm just denying evidence. And from reading that book, I moved on. I read a lot of the sequences on Less Wrong. I read a lot of Thinking Fast and Slow. I learned a lot about these cognitive biases and heuristics and how the brain works. 
And it kind of shifted my entire worldview to being a little bit more evidence-based, being more concerned with going out and finding scientific data to back things up. It's part of the reason why a lot of my YouTube videos cite so many studies and why I go to, to cover a topic. I'm a little less willing to just give my random opinion on it. And I really want to dig into what's been studied empirically. And uh, I also have this book on my list because it kind of rekindled my interest in math and science and a lot of academic subjects in general. Uh, after reading this book, I went on to read a lot of history. I went on to read books on chemistry. Um, and when I was in high school, I did bad in calculus. So I kind of told myself that I wasn't cut out for something like engineering because I figured calculus two would be too hard for me. You know, physics at college level would be too hard for me. And I went into business because I was like, oh, well, that'll be easier. Um, I was also interested in business. I was also interested in IT and stuff. So it wasn't like entirely running away from what I was afraid of. But I do remember my parents telling me in high school, you know, we think you'd be good at electronic engineering or computer engineering or something. And I told myself, right, like I just kind of dismissed it right out of hand. Uh, I'm not cut out for hard science and math and stuff like that. And reading this book, and uh, the subsequent kind of rabbit holes I went down afterwards has convinced me that, no, I could have done that. And I think a lot of people convince themselves that they're not cut out for hard sciences or they're not cut out for some subject that they don't do well in at first. And uh, they could do it if they put more effort into it. I think you would probably agree with languages, right? Because a lot of people say, I'm not cut out for learning languages. And it's more of a case of like, no, you just haven't tried hard enough or you haven't used the right learning techniques. Yeah, uh, because each, each person might have their own specific way that works best for them. And there's just everybody learns a language. Well, almost everybody, mm -hmm. you know, because even somebody who thinks they couldn't learn anything and everything is the hardest thing in the world, if they were born in China, would be speaking Chinese right now. So it's yeah, it's hard to say that something like that is just completely impossible for somebody to learn. You've just got to figure out the best way to reach a higher potential. Yeah, and I think it's the same with math. I remember the this author also wrote this, I think it's like 10,000 words, a 10,000 word article explaining in excruciating detail how Bayes' theorem works. And Bayes' theorem is just this mathematical formula. Uh, it's like a probability theory formula that allows you to assign probability points to any evidence that comes in to a theory you have and uh, the formula allows you to shift your prior belief based on how probably true this evidence is. So uh, it's used really extensively in like spam filters. So whenever uh, you know an email comes into a, an email system, it'll kind of take user data on whether people have flagged that as spam or whether it contained a virus or whatever, uh, do all sorts of analysis on what was in the email and then shift the spam filters formula ever so slightly to become more accurate. And that's just one example of how Bayes' theorem is used. But um, a lot of rationalists call themselves Bayesians because they are trying to much more precisely shift their beliefs about anything in the world, science, math, uh, religion, any kind of stuff like that, based on evidence and how it can shift their belief in you know very precise ways. Yeah, that might be all I have to say about that book. That, that sounds really cool. So it's like, reading that it is a harry potter fan fiction but in addition to that it's a launch pad to the world of rational thought and yeah. like and like it's it's like him overtly trying to get people into this subject like i want to I look up some of the chapter titles real quick 
Yeah, that's a really cool way to get people to maybe try to increase their ability to tolerate those kind of things, especially like math and science and stuff you said you get interested in. A lot of people yeah. are scared of those in school, whereas maybe if they were more interested in how it worked in the end due to something like this, exactly, it would make more sense and they would find out they're really good at it. I think with math and science, it's really one of those cases of don't compare your beginning with somebody else's middle or end. Because with math and science, it's very easy to see like that's ridiculously complex, and there's ten thousand oh, yeah. steps. You can barely see what's where on I the board and where they are. Whereas maybe with English or writing, you're like, oh, well, I can just be more creative and come up with something like that. You know, it's harder to see the steps somebody takes to create a masterpiece in a more creative field. But yeah, some of the chapter titles are like locating the hypothesis, dominance hierarchies, uh, reductionism, <laughs> egocentric bias. Like it's basically, he's <laughs> like you will get interested in rationality by reading this kind of thing. And it's literally um, a curriculum. Yeah, kind of, but actually it, it almost is a lot of the conversation um, when there's not like action happening or plot being moved forward is just dialogue on these kind of things. And I think he writes it pretty well. Um, it's not like the most elegant prose ever, especially in the beginning, maybe five chapters, but and there are 122 chapters and it gets better as it goes on. And I would say if you're interested in these subjects already, you don't have to read this book to be more interested in them. Like go pick up Thinking Fast and Slow or dig into the Less Wrong sequences or read uh, uh, Robert, uh, is it Robert Cialdini's Influence? I think it's called. That's kind of like the easier popular science book to start getting into these topics. Um, but yeah, the, the reason I got into this book was I was on a thread in Hacker News and it was like, what was the best book you read in 2013 or something like that? And somebody had linked to this. So I don't think I would have ever gone out looking for a fan fiction to read, but because somebody on Hacker News, which is like full of startup founders and computer programmers, uh, recommended it, I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I liked it. Cool. All right. So the next book I want to talk about is another book I read last year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anna. Oh, Bloodborne sounds fun. <laughs> but it's called The Tao of Pooh, like Winnie the Pooh. Okay. And... Uh, I, yes, technically, uh, the Chinese philosophy is pronounced closer to Tao, but you know what? Taoism and Taoism are both English words referencing a Chinese philosophy, so I'm going to pronounce it Tao right now. Okay. But it was a lot about, it was kind of a super simplified look uh, at Taoism and comparing it to how the character Winnie the Pooh naturally exemplifies some of these things mm -hmm. uh, throughout his stories. So what is, what is Taoism? Can you like summarize it? I don't know that I'd do a super good job of summarizing it just because all I've read is this very intro level. But a lot of it's okay. focused on accepting things as they are. Like this is how things are and not being so stressed about the stuff you can't change or trying to control things and just being in the moment. A lot of the stuff I read last year has been kind of in this theme to obviously to help me cope with the fact that in the moment I was injured. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it's about just being being in the moment and seeing how the world is. And it's it's so much more in-depth than that, I can't do it justice. But there was this particular passage that really kind of hit me when I was reading this book. And it's, uh, down through the centuries, man has developed a, man, a mind that separates him from the world of reality, the world of natural laws, uh, ellipsis, because there's a bunch of other stuff. But... It goes here and there, backwards and forwards, and fails to concentrate on what it's doing at the moment. It drives down the street in a fast-moving car and thinks it's at the store, going over a grocery list, and then it wonders why accidents occur. And I had never thought about 
that kind of thing. But that makes so much sense because like in taking the bus to university, I would actually sit in the, I would be on the bus. I know I'm on the bus. It's kind of an adventure. I'd give myself tons of time to get to a place and I would look through the windows. I would, uh, attentively look at what was around me. I would look at the people. I would talk to people. But then you get this, you get in a car and you're just like, I got to get there. I got to get there now. I don't care about the journey in the slightest because I'm in a hurry because now I'm in a car and you're going over. What am I going to do at the place I'm about to be? But you're not, you're not really there yet. You're completely in a moment that hasn't come yet. You're, you're like ever so slightly in the future thinking about stuff that really isn't going to be that helpful into Mm -hmm. like, like a grocery list. You are, it's a list. You already have it. You don't need to be thinking about it until you're at the store. So if you would focus more on the journey to the store, you would be more attentive to everything around you. Maybe you would see things like, hey, a sign for a yard sale. Or you would think of something else, or you would drive safer. And just outside of the driving analogy, it's so much of really paying attention to the moment you're in and not trying so much to be fast-forwarding to the moment the, where you want to accomplish this thing. Where are you right now? I'd like to speak 7 million languages, but where are you right now? Because if you think about speaking 7 million languages all day, guess how many you're going to be speaking at the end of the day? Probably yeah. just your main one. Yeah, just one. Because you need to focus on the step you're currently taking. Have some thoughts for the steps after that, sure. But if you obsess over the steps that come next, then you're not going to give proper attention to the step that you're taking in this moment. Hmm. that could lead you to those steps later. I think this is something I needed to hear right now. <laughs> I've, I've been getting a little bit of this because Anna and I are taking a yoga class and I took yoga because I wanted to become more flexible. And that was like my main goal for doing it. But when you're there, the instructor is constantly telling us, set your intention and be in the moment and don't think about what's happening before or after this class. Just kind of think about now and it's like the one time in the week when I actually do think about now and I find myself enjoying that class a lot and most of the other time I'm kind of thinking forward to things that are going to happen in the future um, I've caught myself doing it during this very podcast actually and and like you said with goals too like what's going to happen you know a month from now uh, where am I going to be a year from now there's less of an emphasis on experiencing what's happening right now than there is on kind of living a little bit in the future, like you said. Yeah. And because of this, because of this book making me think that way, I realized, so I took a photography class last year and I noticed that activity is one where I am 100% in the present. If my eye is behind the lens, I am not thinking about literally anything else. Mm -hmm. And I realized how enjoyable that is to be lost in your craft, like the kind of things where you're so obsessed about something and you're so into it, you forget to eat because that's how into what you're doing you are. Yeah. That's, it's just so great. I used to get that. I used to get that a little bit with video games. Yeah. I used to when I was really young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was a kid, like the first time I played Pokemon or a few, you know, a few other RPGs that I played, um, nothing else mattered when I was playing them. And uh, the same, I can get the same feeling with some fiction books at times. Yeah, but a lot of times, you know, I'm not reading a book, and I have I have a lot of trouble getting into video games now, and I kind of crave that feeling. Yeah, it's um, it's a really good one. Mm-hmm. I've I've been getting it more this year, 
when I do my skating class or when I work with my coach, like that's, I get the feeling then because I really love what I'm doing. And I think a lot of people kind of put that off into the future and assume that a little bit in the future, they're going to be doing something that will give them that feeling, but they're not doing it now. And I've learned that you can probably make a pretty small change in your life. Maybe just taking a class or picking up a little hobby or reading a book and experience that feeling um, sooner than just someday in the future. Like you may think you'll be feeling it. Yeah. As if you're, if you were always living three days ahead, someday there won't be three days ahead and you never actually felt that way because you were always thinking too far ahead to notice where you were at. Yeah. You know, I'm like, so we're like sitting here recording this and I'm like, man, we're just dumping all the lessons from nine books. This is going to be the best podcast episode ever. And then I was like, nah, someone will probably find like one thing in the episode that's useful. Oh, it'll be just like these books we read. Yeah, it'll be just like the book. Yeah, I wonder if the authors I'm, of the I'm distilling like, hundreds of pages into like three sentences that I cared about. lessons ever. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so next book for me is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And I have made a video about this book. People probably know that I like this book a lot. The reason I love this book, and I'm sure there are other books on habits that would have done the exact same thing for me, but when I read this book, I was kind of stagnant in my business. So I've been blogging and running College of Book Geek since 2010 when I was a freshman in college. And then I graduated in 2013. And right around the time I graduated, uh, I started playing Magic the Gathering. And I mean, you did too, but you probably remember there was a period of a few months where like I was just spending way too much time like researching stuff and putting together decks and yeah he got really mad when i beat him so then he wrote a guide on the different tactics i used and spent hours researching how to beat me because so there's there's literally there's a there's a justice mean. league movie where batman has like this file uh that has methods of defeating every other justice league member just in case yeah. one of them goes rogue and i literally have that yeah for all my friends i play magic with. it's pretty ridiculous but it's also flattering i'm a super villain now <laughs> but if you look back through my archives around that time and for the months before and after I was only pulling out like five articles a month because I quite frankly was treating my business as an amateur would treat it I was like I will write when I feel inspired to write and otherwise I'll just do what I want which in that case was researching magic cards or or playing video games or whatever I was doing you know I was doing just enough work to keep everything afloat but I wasn't treating it like a true professional and then I read this book and I started, I think it was around the same time I discovered Habit RPG. And I was like, okay, maybe I need to get serious about building habits and showing up and doing the same thing every single day. And um, like a few other people I was reading online were kind of echoing these, these sentiments as well, like Sean McCabe and James Clear. They were saying like professionals show up every single day. They don't wait for inspiration. And I took this to heart when I kind of got all these messages in both my business and with my personal life. So I set up a morning routine. I decided I was gonna get up at like 5.50 every morning and do all these different things in the morning. And um, because I did that, that kind of propelled me into acting more like a professional in my business. I also set up uh, a goal on a tool called Beeminder, which I've also talked about a lot, where I'll have to pay money if I don't publish enough blog posts every week. At first it was three a week. I've gone down to two because videos take so long to make now, but you can go look at uh, summer 2014 to now. There's a big increase in posts per month starting like fall 2014 and especially going up to 2015. 
And uh, that corresponds with a ridiculous uptick in the success of the business. So the reason the YouTube channel is so successful, the reason the website gets uh, literally five times as much traffic as it did during that summer when I was not working very hard is because I've decided to show up every single day and I made doing content, I made you know doing my work a habit and I made a lot of things in my personal life a habit as well, which just kind of made me a more habit-driven person. And the power of habit, I learned a lot about how habits are formed in that book, which was helpful, but really it was just the act of reading a book on habits and it just planting this idea in my mind of I need to do this now. And I think, you know, probably any book could do that for you. So it's not necessarily the, you know, the, the scientific content in the book or the, you know, the value of each page. But like we said earlier, it's, it's just like one idea can be planted at the right time and it can shape, uh, shape your life in a different way. All right. So this is on uh, my fourth one. Yeah. I think we have three left total. Yeah. Okay. So my fourth book is, uh, essentialism and I think there's a subtitle, but I don't remember what it is because it was not essential. So <laughs> essentialism is this great book that was recommended to me by a teacher and it's so I had been pretty interested in the idea of minimalism for a while. Mm-hmm. So then and, but then I read this essentialism book and it's kind of like it's kind of like that but not quite. So it's not entirely minimalism because it won't pare down on things that are really important, but it wants to pare down specifically on the things that are not important, the things that are not essential. Mm -hmm. Pare down all of those so that you can give your all to the essential. So one of these things, one of these thoughts that I've actively used for a long time since reading it is, so they've got thing, they've got a thing in here about instead of making just a millimeter of progress in a million directions, you want to make a lot of progress in like a few directions. You don't want to have tremendous breadth but no depth in anything because then like what I guess you can participate in a lot of conversations a tiny bit but you're not really that good at anything you're probably not going to be that proud of any of those things so what was the point of being mildly knowledgeable on 300 things when you could have been an expert at like three Mm -hmm. and that could have been a big deal so I keep that in mind a lot because back in the university I was juggling so many things that it was ridiculous and it was hard to see at the time because I was making a little bit of progress, but I was making such a small amount of progress in all those things compared to what I could have done if I had focused on a couple of things and just dumped all that time into becoming amazing at those. So like recently I've had to rebuild a lot of my language skills because I lost a lot of stuff after injuries and other stuff that isn't essential right now. But I've been focusing almost exclusively on building my Spanish rather than trying to build up five languages at once. And because of that, my Spanish is now better than it has ever been, hands down. Because I chose, and I'm very happy with that. Whereas maybe if I was kind of okay at the five languages I had been studying at the time, maybe I still wouldn't be very happy with that because it, it takes so long to build that much progress in something. And what if you change your mind halfway through? Now you just lost your mediocre talents at 7 billion things and you don't even have anything really to show for it. If mm-hmm. I quit learning languages right now, I still have Spanish to show for it because I focused on one thing first. Yeah, because you're at the point where you can basically watch any movie in Spanish now, right? 
Well, for the most part. Some mm. are going to be a little more difficult than others, but a yeah. lot of things I can enjoy in Spanish now as if it were not in Spanish. Like, I watch uh, translated Pokemon episodes because I love Pokemon, but why not also make it practice? Yeah. And it's as if I'm watching it in English. I don't even really realize that I'm watching it in Spanish unless somebody points it out. I'm just watching a show I like. Which, and that is mind-boggling to me. It's as somebody who doesn't know a language well enough to think in it, it's like... I'm always translating in my head. Yeah, it's it's really cool, and I would not be able to get to that point if I was just like, yeah, I know how to introduce myself in seven languages. You know, that's not it's not as fulfilling. Now I can casually improve my Spanish by simply reading books and watching things and having conversations rather than drilling grammar every day. Yeah. And that's a lot more rewarding for me than trying to dump everything that I have to rebuild at once. Mm-hmm. Does that book talk about like material possessions as well, or is it more about your pursuit? It does talk about material possessions as well. One thing, uh, I didn't highlight it, but one thing that was cool was more than the attitude, people have a lot of problems getting rid of things they already own. You've probably researched mm-hmm. this. Like, like loss of it version. Is, yeah, a loss yeah. of version. Like it's harder for me to lose $20 than it is for me to lazily not gain $20. Mm-hmm. But the idea for getting rid of stuff, the was written about was look at something look at something that you have and don't say how much did it cost that doesn't matter say how much would you pay to buy this again if you didn't currently have it if you didn't have it anymore somebody stole it from you and you wanted it back what would you be willing to pay if you wouldn't be willing to pay a lot then it's probably not that important to you even if you paid a lot at the time even if it's a tablet you haven't touched in a year and it was $300 if you're not using it and you wouldn't if it was gone you wouldn't want to buy it again then why do you have it? I like that a lot more than some of the minimalist stuff that I got into earlier. Uh, yeah, I think this like, is a lot more flexible with allowing you to have things. Yeah. I remember I found these people online, like the minimalists and uh, a blogger named Colin Wright, and they're like, yeah, I pared down my possessions to 100 items. I only own 100 things. And it sounds and, so cool. You know, it's, yeah, it sounds awesome. There was like this, this site called The Cult of Less back then as well. Uh, literally like one of the guys who inspired me to start college at Bogeek did that. And they were all kind of like flaunting this low number of things they own. I only have two pairs of boxers, you know, three shirts and only a cell phone and an iPad. And I didn't even have a laptop or anything. And I kind of got infatuated with this idea. I was like, man, it'd be super cool to only own a hundred things, be able to live out of a backpack. And I've realized that that doesn't make me happy because there are things I like to do that require you know, several different things. So for me, minimalism, which if you looked at my room, you would say Thomas is absolutely not a minimalist at all, <laughs> is is just have the things that benefit you, that allow you to do things that have utility. And if something doesn't have utility or doesn't make you happy, you know, I love art. My, my room is covered in art. There's like almost no wall space open, uh, but that makes me happy. But if I just have a bunch of random stuff that I am keeping out of like obligation or whatever, like that to me is not being a minimalist. So I'll I'll get rid of those things. And I think that's that's probably more in the spirit of essentialism than yeah. I own 100 things. Look at my hips. Yeah, it's more like I don't own 100 extra things that I didn't really want. Yeah. Uh, There's another part of that of essentialism that I literally use every day. Mm -hmm. And it talks about this idea that Derek Sivers talked about, actually, where it's no more yes, it's either hell yeah or no. 
Okay. So a lot of decision-making is like this. And this book goes into depth about how that fits into the essentialism mindset. But largely it's like, let's say somebody wants me to go buy pizza or something. And my response is, uh, well, I guess it kind of sounds good, but I don't know about the, I don't know if I should pay for that right now. D- immediately, because I'm hesitating, the answer is no. It's I'm not excited about it, so why should I do it? And mm. it's to pare down your decisions and to do things you're really excited to do rather than just things that, yeah, I suppose I'm supposed to do that. And then fill your life with more things that you're really passionate about or that you really wanted to do. I like that. And I've thought about that in terms of work because I get a lot of like podcast requests or you know, people want to like jump on a call with me or I want me to do something or collaborate. And I, I do try to keep that hell yeah or no mentality in mind. I like the pizza analogy though, because I've realized that I do commit myself to things I'm not really sure about that. I like waste money on stuff. Where I'm just like, yeah, I guess I could do that. <laughs> Maybe through uh, social guilt a lot of times. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Peer pressure. I, I don't know. I <laughs> guess I'll do it. But if your answer isn't yeah, I'd totally love to do this with my friends. Then maybe you're just letting your friends make you do something you really don't want to do. Mm-hmm. You're just getting that FOMO. And it's going to get it's gonna get piled on, and eventually you're going to be a little less happy with the situation. It, it would be cleaner if you just admitted the things you don't really want to do. Yeah. So my last book is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And this is the book... Uh, this book is one of the main reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing today because I, I've said it in videos before, maybe you know, maybe you don't, that my original goal going into college was to become like a system administrator who sits in the basement of an IT company and runs all the computers. Uh, it seems totally contrary to what I do now, but that was that's what I thought sounded cool. And it was the summer after my freshman year, I think it was right around the time I started College of Bill Geek, which was just started as kind of a fun little project. I read this book on a whim. I don't know why I read it, um, but it's basically this book about becoming what Ferris calls the new rich, where instead of focusing on these old metrics like a specific amount of money in your bank account that lets you retire or just the concept of retirement in general, Think more about what is it you want to do and what will it take to let you do that as soon as possible. Uh, He talks about something called mini retirements where maybe you could take uh, a few months off of your work to go do something, learn a skill or travel or do what you want instead of saying, oh, I'm going to put all that off till I'm 65. And the main crux of the book was becoming an entrepreneur that can build a business that sustains itself so it can support you. Uh, He has this acronym called DEAL, which is Definition, Elimination, Automation, and Liberation. And definition is that sort of new rich concept of defining what do you actually want, what will it take to get it, and do you actually need like to wait till you're 65 and retire to have it. Elimination is this idea of um, eliminating everything that is not needed in your life, but also eliminating everything that you need to do by building your business in such a way that it's automated. So that moves to automation. And uh, there's this idea of like, I think he said something about like becoming a little or no value entrepreneur. So it's like your, your business passes through you instead of requiring you to do stuff. And one of the uh, examples he used in the book was like, 
uh, say a guy travels from the U.S. to France on vacation, and he sees like that those popular blue and white striped long sleeve French sailor shirts are kind of popular there. So he buys a few and brings them back to the states and sells them and realizes there's some demand. Uh, so from there, you know, the one option would be to like set up a store, import them, sell them in a brick and mortar store. But the other option is to buy them, uh, set up like a drop shipping uh, set up through some company that can do fulfillment for you, have a website where people can order them themselves, and then you just get a check every month. And this system is just automatically working for you. You have eliminated your entire role from the business, but you're still benefiting from it. I didn't go try to sell French sailor shirts, <laughs> but... Yet. Yet, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Keep your eyes out, peeled for the college the official info geek college info geek shirts. French They're coming. Shirt. <laughs> Only nineteen ninety five. Uh, <laughs> now we got to do that. Yeah, we probably should. It did put this idea in my mind though of oh, um, you can set up a system that benefits you for the long term, and you know, it keeps benefiting you in the future after you've already done the work, and the work I'm doing now where I go to a job and I do something and get paid is entirely transactional in the moment. I do something, they pay me a specific amount of dollars for doing it. But I could set up something that creates recurring value, whether it be a blog post that has an ad in it or a product that can be sell, sold over and over again because it's digital or a book that can be published and reprinted over and over again and I can get royalties. There are a lot of income models that don't require you to keep putting in direct effort. And so that's that's kind of where the seed of the idea that eventually led to this becoming a viable business came from. And a lot of the people I know who are doing similar work to what I do have read that book and will cite it as one of the main influences for what they're doing as well. So whether or not they found everything in the book to be useful, I did not. Uh, that idea, that that idea was kind of like the catalyst for many, many businesses. And also that book was what kind of led me to uh, finding bloggers like Steve Cam from Nerd Fitness or Colin Wright and meeting those people, having conversations with them over the years and learning a lot that helped me build my business as well. So that book gets a spot simply for that idea. All right. So on to the last one. Yep. Which we both have read, but yes, only indeed. one of us found life changing. And one of us is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so the last book, I don't want to talk too much about what's in the book because it's fiction and I don't want to spoil it, but it's Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut, who uh, earlier I mentioned was my, is my favorite author specifically because of that book. I've read it three, maybe four times, and it still means a lot to me every time because I read this during my first or second year in community college before going to university, actually. So I was still kind of developing who, who I was uh, as an adult. And brief overview, it's about this rich, mildly immoral guy, and he ends up having a cool journey through space and some other things. But it's so much more than that because telling you what literally happens tells you almost nothing. It's interesting that way. Hmm. But this book more than anything for me it has so many different parts that discuss or reference life and morality like what is right or wrong this book blurs the lines in a lot of different ways over and over 
And for me at that time, it made me question like morality and uh, like a purpose or the meaning of life a lot because it was at the time I was very resolute in what I thought was right or wrong. And I read this and then there were weird situations where I was I was confused. I couldn't immediately label it. It seemed like it could that could be justified, but it it doesn't normally fit into what I would think of. And it kind of this book made me question my own values and my own purpose and it made me just think a little more deeply about things, a little more subjectively and empathetically to see what would other people say about this. My values are not objective, but they're because of who I am and my environment. What would other people think if they were raised or grew up differently? Mm. So it's not necessarily the story in this book that gets me, even though I love the story. But this book, at a time when maybe maybe I needed it, made me stop being so resolute in my understanding of the world and values. Okay. So I read this book not too long ago, maybe 2014, on your recommendation. And to me, like one of the main themes of the book was free will or kind of like a lack of it, lack of agency, um, kind of like raging against forces you don't control kind of thing. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. I I loved his writing style. It's very different than anything else I've ever written. It's it's like a very sparse writing style almost. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's kind no, of hard I, to I really enjoy it. He... It's it's very clear throughout his other books that it's mm-hmm. like his writing. Yeah, yeah, you can tell Vonnegut prose from other prose. Um, I think the reason this book wasn't life changing to me was mainly because I had already written or read uh, Methods of Rationality. I already dug into a lot of. Um, just questioning my beliefs, reading a lot of extra philosophy. And I had moved on from this very staunch right and wrong um, lack of context, lack of situational awareness mindset that I'd been in as a child or as a teenager. So when this book came along, it was almost just kind of like a story to me. There wasn't a whole lot to shift my worldview, but I could see how it would do that for you since you read it younger. Than yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for me, this is my Methods of Rationality made me open my mind to Mm. things book. And because of that, I will forever be grateful that I read it because it changed how I think forever. Just like uh, Methods of Rationality made you think about a whole whole lot of other things. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's our nine books. Uh, Anything before we wrap up then? Uh, No. No, I think that's... Pretty good, pretty good cover. Some pretty good books. If you read all of them, you'll probably be a genius. Yeah, yeah, Guaranteed. you'll take over the world. <laughs> Guaranteed, or uh, Tom will give you your money back. I don't know what money you took, <laughs> what, I, what money I took from you. But I yeah. don't know the right non-existent money. money I took from you. You get it back. They're probably good though. <laughs> Maybe check out a few. Yeah, they are good. I'll have them all linked up in the show notes, um, along with a few of the other things we talked about. I've got some notes written down here. You can find them all over at CIGpodcast.com, episode 96, link on the page. Check them out and also rate and review the podcast if you enjoyed it. If you want to find more resources and tools to make your college experience better, you can check those out over at collegeinfogeek.com slash resources. And like I said, I'm also going to have a discussion thread for this episode in the uh, community. So there will be a link in the show notes if you want to put your two cents in about any of these books or any books that you have read that you found life-changing as well. 
So thanks for listening. And as always, I will see you next week. Stay cute. Keep it real, y'all.